Welcome, everybody, to these Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Von Sayo, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Starting today with football coverage, looking at Derek Carr's comments about the Steelers. This past week, he was speaking to members of the media, and it was brought up about the history that occurred in the 1970s, 1980s with the Raiders and the Steelers. And Derek Carr's first comment to reporters was that the ball hit the ground. Now, some of you may know immediately what that is referencing. Others may be confused as to what he's even trying to say. Well, Derek Carr is referencing... Franco Harris and the Immaculate Reception and the Raiders quarterback trying to stir up Steeler Nation by saying that the ball was incomplete and Franco Harris picked it up after it hit the ground. Now, again, it may just be nothing more than Derek Carr trying to rile up Steelers fans and make it a much more competitive game on Sunday. But first of all, Derek Carr has accomplished nothing in his professional football career. Absolutely nothing. So for someone like him to be trying to stir up an entire fan base, he's messing with the wrong crowd, really, because... Again, he's won nothing on the field. His brother, David Carr, won nothing as well. And so you can't even justify it by saying, well, Derek Carr is a two-time Super Bowl champion. No, he's won nothing. He's made it to three Pro Bowls, and that's it. I don't even think, no. As a matter of fact, I know for certain He hasn't even taken the Raiders to the playoffs. How can you talk about an entire organization when you haven't even taken your team to the playoffs? So my response to Derek Carr is that he just needs to stay quiet and focus on his own organization because they have plenty of problems right now. It wasn't so long ago that they were playing in a 45-year-old dumpster fire of a stadium that was falling apart as we speak. Unfortunately for them, they were able to get out of Oakland and move to Las Vegas. And they left it for the Oakland Athletics to try and continue fighting for a new stadium with. So, again, Derek Carr really not in much of a position to talk about something that happened 40 years ago in a big rivalry game that ultimately allowed the Steelers to go on and win a Super Bowl. Derek Carr dreams of winning a Super Bowl. Now, you might be saying, Drew, everybody dreams of winning a Super Bowl, especially an NFL player. The difference is is that the Steelers in the 70s, they made it happen four times. Derek Carr is 30 years old, 
hasn't even sniffed the playoffs and more than likely never will. That's the difference. A crucial difference at that. So I would really like to see the Steelers' defense take those comments to heart and just give Derek Carr a little bit extra contact on Sunday. Not enough to draw a penalty, not enough to injure him, but just enough to say and show him that they heard his comments and they're not going to tolerate it. Because we've seen what happens, what's happened in the past when opposing teams and opposing fan bases have tried to disrespect the terrible towel. And 9.99 times out of 10, the odds do not go in favor of said team or said fan base come game day. Pittsburgh does not tolerate that kind of disrespect when it comes to a terrible towel, our fan base, or the history of the organization. They just don't. And if Derek Carr wants to run his mouth, then he obviously can. But at the same time, he's going he's gonna to have to understand that more than likely he'll pay for it on Sunday. The Steelers' defense blitzed just twice in the game against the Buffalo Bills. But yet they had 18 quarterback pressures, the most in week one. If they get 18 quarterback pressures from just two drawn-up blitzes, I can't imagine what the statistics are going to be like when Keith Butler starts sending the troops in at full force. Whoever the quarterback is, whether it's Derek Carr, Lamar Jackson, Baker Mayfield, or anyone in the league, with the exception of maybe Tom Brady, is probably going to have nightmares for the rest of the week because of it. They're going to be scared out of their mind when Keith Butler lets all hell break loose and unleashes the Steeler defense with Devin Bush, T.J. Watt, Alex Highsmith, Melvin Ingram, Cam Hayward, Tyson Aluwalu, Carlos Davis, and even Stephon Tuitt, who hasn't appeared yet, but hopes to return at some point this season. This defense is legit, especially the front seven. And for Derek Carr to be running his mouth a couple of games before going up against that defense is clearly a mistake. Now, speaking of the Raiders, and particularly the offensive side of the ball, Their entire offense goes through Darren Waller, their tight end. Now, Darren Waller, over the past season or two, has really seen his value increase. Not only in the Raiders' offense, in fantasy football, but the NFL as a whole. And teams are starting to pay more attention to him. In the 33-27 overtime victory against the Baltimore Ravens, Darren Waller 
had 10 receptions for 105 yards and one touchdown. In that game as well, he had 19 targets. The second highest member of the Raiders offense had nine targets. And if my memory serves me correctly, it was Hunter Renfro. So every single wide receiver in the Raiders offense is losing targets to Darren Waller. It's going to be another situation this Sunday like it was last Sunday where you're not going to be able to stop Darren Waller entirely just like you weren't able to stop Stephon Diggs entirely. But it's about limiting him as much as possible. They did it perfectly fine with Diggs. He didn't break over 75 receiving yards. He only had between six to seven catches, kept him out of the end zone, and that's exactly what they're going to have to look to do now with Darren Waller because it's clear he's Derek Carr's number one target. That is blatantly obvious after one week of football. And I know on Monday I was talking about avoiding overreactions after one week of football. This is not an overreaction because Darren Waller is a legitimate tight end. And the Steelers are absolutely going to be game planning defensively about stopping him. And they know that if Derek Carr can find Darren Waller with ease on Sunday, it's going to make things chaotic for them defensively. Whether it's Minka Fitzpatrick in coverage, Terrell Edmonds, Cam Sutton, Trey Norwood, James Pierre, you're going to need somebody that's strong and physical to line up against Darren Waller. I would not even be opposed to seeing a corner go against Darren Waller, whether it's Cam Sutton, Trey Norwood, or James Pierre. Obviously, they're going to keep Joe Hayden out wide, whether it's covering Hunter Renfro or any of the other Raiders receivers who received the number of targets that you can count on one hand. But Darren Waller needs to be covered tremendously this Sunday. And it might be a bit of a physicality mismatch, whether it's Norwood, Pierre, or Sutton, because Waller is going to have the size. He may even have the height. But you need somebody with the speed of a corner and the pass coverage skills of a corner to help defend Darren Waller. None of this linebacker BS, even the safeties at times, aren't the best in best in pass coverage, especially Minka. Which is why last week we saw Minka dropping down into the dime package as a linebacker. And it raised a lot of questions because people were saying, wasn't the whole reason why Minka wanted out of Miami was because he was being used in certain packages as a linebacker and he wanted to just specifically play safety? And the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, that was a part of the issue with Minka Fitzpatrick down in Miami. He didn't want to be used as a dime linebacker there. 
but the also the answer is no because Minka Fitzpatrick is perfectly fine with it here in Pittsburgh. So, again, Minka being used in the dime linebacker role was not the entire reason he wanted out of Miami. It was part of the reason. At the time Minka Fitzpatrick was traded out of Miami, that organization had no direction. They were a team that was kind of stuck between five to seven wins at best every season and they just couldn't develop players they couldn't find that click to get themselves going and improve in the win column they trade Minka Fitzpatrick to Pittsburgh get multiple picks back for him and then we saw last year in 2020 the Dolphins really stepping it up they have Miles Gaskin now who can carry the ball out of the backfield they went out and got Tua Tagovailoa, who is now their starting quarterback. They had Ryan Fitzpatrick last year, along with Tua, that they kind of went back and forth, utilizing based on matchups and who was the hot hand. But the bottom line is that Miami has improved significantly since Minka Fitzpatrick was traded, in part because of the trade that sent him to Pittsburgh. They got an extra first-round pick out of it and took advantage of that pick. So, again, it wasn't so much as Minka not wanting to be in the dime linebacker role and only wanting to play safety, but the fact that he was playing as that linebacker in Miami where he absolutely did not want to be and knew that the organization unless drastic changes were made, had no shot of contending for a Super Bowl anytime soon. And I honestly can't blame him for that because as an NFL player, you want to win a Super Bowl. And he clearly wasn't happy there, forced his way out, came to a great organization like the Steelers, and is now a part of an elite defense that is only going to get better over the next two to three years. Now, his contract extension, of course, is a different story. Still kind of dreading the thought of that after seeing what Steelers fans went through with T.J. Watt. But, again, I would completely expect Minka Fitzpatrick to sign a long-term extension with the organization because they know what he brings to the table. In 2019... He was a beast at the safety position. I can't even count the number of interceptions, pass deflections, or impressive tackles he made in 2019. And then last season, yes, the statistics dropped off, but the difference was is that Minka Fitzpatrick lost the amount of interceptions he had, lost the amount of passes that he had to defend, because teams knew how good he was. They would be more likely to throw the ball into double coverage with a corner and a linebacker than throw the ball anywhere near Minka Fitzpatrick. So, of course, your numbers are going to go down when you're not getting the same sample size that you were the year prior, which is nothing but a credit to the talent level of Minka Fitzpatrick and 
great recognition by teams and their offensive coordinators. And now we're seeing Minka Fitzpatrick really start to solidify his run game defense. There were times in the game Sunday against Buffalo where he almost got beat, but he made up for it in certain situations. So if Minka can really work on solidifying his tackling ability because there there are times where he just tries to shove the player down to the ground or shove them out of bounds and it doesn't work, if he really works on wrapping up and sending someone to the ground, then he is going to be an all-around elite safety, one of the best in the league, and it'll make the Steelers much more likely to lock him up. Not that there's any doubts about it, but it would improve it from, we'll say, a 99.7% chance to a 99.9% chance because the Steelers aren't going to let Minka Fitzpatrick walk in free agency. I can say that with 100% certainty. There's no way the Steelers will let Minka Fitzpatrick walk into free agency. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we come back, Hockey Talk with the Penguins looking at a make-or-break year for Jason Zucker. Expectations for the Penguins preseason and whether or not P.O. Joseph can make the NHL roster right here on Bethany Online Radio. Is that machine? No party was complete without 
ask who really cares. George once said to me, and I quote, he said, never wait or hesitate. Get in good before it's too late. You may never get another chance. Cause youth's a mask, but it don't last. Live it long and live it fast. Georgie was a friend of mine. everyone to the three rivers talk show for the latest now with the pittsburgh penguins mentioned before the break talking about a make or break year for penguins winger jason zucker now jason zucker acquired by the organization in a trade with the minnesota wild a few years back zucker made an impact almost immediately for the organization and for the team but has since really fallen into a bit of a slide and just continues to struggle to produce as a winger for the Penguins, regardless of the line that he is on. Looking at his stats over the past couple of seasons, number of goals he continues to accumulate drop, total points drop, in 2019-2020, which is when he came to the Penguins organization, in 15 games, 6 goals, 6 assists. Total of 12 points. Reasonable. Was still trying to settle in. Ultimately got 
halted by the stoppage in play with the pandemic, but really disappeared in that series against the Montreal Canadiens. Now, last season, played in 38 games, 9 goals, 9 assists, total of 18 points. How are you only scoring 9 goals as a top 6 winger in 38 games? In 38 games, only shooting the puck 67 times. Why is he, first of all, why is he not shooting the puck more? Which is also a question of why he's not scoring more, or rather an answer as to why he's not scoring more. But part of the problem is, or part of my question is, why is he not getting the puck more? He played every single game that he was in last season on the second line, most of the time with Evgeny Malkin prior to Malkin's injuries at the end of the season. So he's playing with an elite center, and usually on the other side of Malkin was Kasperi Kapanen. Why was Malkin, or why was Kapanen not getting the puck to Zuckermore? There just there seems to be too much of a disconnect on that second line with Malkin, Kapanen, and Zucker. And it's really hurting the production of both Zucker and Kapanen. Now, Kapanen, just in year one with the team, had a decent opportunity last year on the second line, made the most of it as he scored a handful of goals. I'll have the exact number here momentarily, but Jason Zucker not replicating the same. Mentioned Zucker just having nine goals. Kapanen, 11. So not a whole lot higher, but still into the double digits, almost at 20 assists. So I really question now What's going on with Malkin and why he doesn't work well with Zucker? Why he doesn't work well with Kapanen? And I've said before that I think Malkin works best with Brian Rust and they should play together more often. But it seems like Sullivan is hell-bent on Rust playing the top line with Crosby and Gensel. And I get it. Brian Rust is an elite winger for the Penguins. But you have to also take into account who plays well with each other. And in the games prior where Rust and Malkin were together, they worked so well with each other. And I'm not advocating for Jake Gensel to get moved down to the second line, but one thing I'd like to see maybe is test Brock McGinn on the second line when Malkin returns. See how the two of them play off of each other. Get Zucker working with Jeff Carter and see if that can lead to a spark somewhere. Yes, it would be a bit of a demotion for Jason Zucker to go down to the third line with Jeff Carter once the team is healthy and Crosby and Malkin are back. But at the same time, Zucker really needs to just do what he needs to 
to get going because nine goals in 38 games is nowhere near good enough for a Penguins organization looking to make Stanley Cup winning runs. The years with Crosby, Malkin, Latang, I feel like I said this every episode, the years with Crosby, Malkin, and Latang are dwindling as we speak. You can't afford to sit around and just wait for Zucker to finally get it together. So I also wouldn't be surprised if Zucker struggles this weekend, or not this weekend, this season. If Zucker struggles this season, I would not be surprised to see the Penguins look to move on from him in the offseason. Because, again, you just can't sit around and wait for something to happen in hopes that it will. Now, mentioned the prospect of looking at Brock McGinn with Evgeny Malkin. And this in part ties in with the preseason expectations that I have for the Penguins. Six games in the preseason, you play two against Columbus, two against Buffalo, two against Detroit. You play each opponent at home and you play each opponent on the road. There's a lot that needs to be looked at in those six games. Of course, how well does Jari respond in the action that he gets? Seeing who the centers are going to be behind Carter, behind Bluger now. But the big free agency signings that the Penguins made, Danton Heinen, Brock McGinn, those two especially are my biggest expectation to see how they perform in the preseason. Because those are players that you signed to try and make an impact, whether it's on the bottom six, the top six, somewhere in between, as the roster gets adjusted. You have to know how these guys are going to perform in preseason to get an idea of how they will ultimately perform over the course of a full 82-game regular season. And for Mike Sullivan, it's an opportunity for him now to say, okay, this is how these guys performed. Who do I think they're going to line up best with, whether it's Bluger, Carter, Evan Rodriguez filling in as a center, maybe even Dominic Simone? We don't know yet what the center depth is going to look like behind Bluger and Carter. And so you've got to see who they work well with. And then once Malkin returns, if Heinen or McGinn are having a great season, you slide them up to the second line and see how well they work with Malkin. Because Malkin is apparently very particular with who he likes to play with on the wings. That's in part why Phil Kessel was traded away from the Penguins organization because he didn't get along well with Malkin. And again, this is pure rumor, but I also wouldn't be surprised. The word on the street was that it was either Malkin or Kessel that they were going to trade. The organization choosing to go with Kessel because they felt he was more expendable, but the feud was there and the tensions were so high that Malkin wanted out because of Kessel and then has since settled down once Kessel left. So Malkin, very particular with his wingers, you have to 
look at this preseason, who you could potentially play on the opposite side of Malkin, whether it's Kapanen or Rust on the right, because, again, Jason Zucker just isn't cutting it. And then the next biggest thing that I want to see out of the preseason, I mentioned it already, Tristan Jari. He's probably not going to play much, more than what Big Ben typically plays in the preseason for the Steelers. But I would expect the organization to really look at the depth behind Jari a lot in preseason. But for Jari, ultimately, is the confidence back? Can he handle the puck appropriately with the stick after last season's demise? Especially in the playoffs. And so it's going to be a test for him as long as he plays in the preseason for however long he plays and something that he's going to need to continue to improve on even after the preseason. Now, I mentioned the goaltending depth behind Tristan Jari. Of course, we know what Casey DeSmith can bring to the table, but really I'm talking about Louis Domingue and Alex Dorio because Domingue brought in to be the third goaltender this season. Dorio most likely starting at Wilkes-Barre Scranton would be the first goaltender to get called up if something were to happen to one of the three that would contend for an NHL spot in Jari DeSmith-Domingue. But Dorio has worked his way through the Penguins organization starting down right down the road in wheeling with the Nailers. He earned a promotion to Wilkes-Barre-Scranton, and so now you have to see what he can do at the NHL level in the preseason. Yes, you want to win preseason games, but player development so, so much more important. And speaking of player development, P.O. Joseph, another one that has continued to develop in Wilkes-Barre-Scranton along with his brief stint in the NHL with the Penguins. Now, a lot of people were very frustrated, at times myself included, when P.O. Joseph was sent back down to Wilkes-Barre. But I was looking at it last night. P.O. Joseph is just 22 years old. Now, I know for the NHL, that may seem older for a rookie because you have people like Crosby, McDavid, Austin Matthews who make their NHL debut at the age of 18. But 22 is still relatively young for a professional athlete, especially those in the United States that get drafted from NCAA Division I hockey. So there's no rush for P.O. Joseph to get promoted to the NHL. He can certainly compete with Chad Ruedel for that sixth and final defenseman spot in the Penguins' defensive pairings this preseason, which he absolutely will because at this point it's ultimately down to Joseph himself or Ruedel. But it's not going to be the end of the world if P.O. Joseph starts the year on the top pairing for the Wilkes-Barre-Scranton Penguins because it's only a matter of time before he takes over at the NHL level for good. Joseph, one of the 
pieces in the Phil Kessel trade. Ultimately the biggest piece, as the other one was Alex Galchenyuk, who was very poor in his time with the Penguins organization. So Pio Joseph, the last hope from that trade for the Penguins. But he has the skill set and he has the talent to be a productive NHL defenseman once he finalizes things with his development and proves to Mike Sullivan, proves to Ron Hextall that he can play at the NHL level consistently well for more than what his stint was this past season. And again, it's only going to come with time, but it starts now with the NHL preseason. We're 10 days away from the first Penguins preseason game. It's at home the night of the 27th against the Blue Jackets. So there's going to be opportunities for him in those games, those six preseason games, to make his statement and show the organization where he truly is with that development. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we come back, final segment today, looking at Pirates baseball and a look back at the Josh Bell trade, starting pitchers fighting for 2022 rotation spots, and a debate as to whether or not one particular veteran should look to have his contract extended right here on Bethany Online Radio.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show for the final segment. Looking back at the Josh Bell trade the Pirates organization made just under a year ago, approaching the nine and a half to ten month mark since Josh Bell was dealt to the Washington Nationals for Will Crow and Eddie Yeen. Now, Will Crow has struggled with the Pirates this season. ERA north of five. Eddie Yeen still working his way through the minor league system. Eddie Yeen, of course, being the main piece of that Josh Bell trade in terms of the Pirates' return. But the trade is still not working out the way that the organization hoped it would. As Crow sitting just a few ticks under an ERA of six, 597 to be exact, Eddie Yeen still several years away from major leagues. And Josh Bell at this point is pushing for 30 home runs this season. So he has refound the power that he once had here in the Pirates organization. Hitting 256, 27 home runs, 83 RBIs. Now, I understand that Josh Bell was not the best defensively. To be quite honest, there weren't many players defensively in Major League Baseball worse than Josh Bell. But the Pirates traded Bell when his value was as low as it could get. Coming off of a horrific 2020 season where he had no value offensively or defensively. Now, I get it. There was a log jam at first base with Bell and Moran. Ben Charrington didn't want to keep them both. I get it. But knowing the power potential in Bell, knowing that you have Key Brian Hayes over at third base, and seeing as Moran was a failed project at third base, so he was then converted to first, I would have been much more likely to move on from Colin Moran than from Josh Bell. Because the thing is, is that if you trade Bell over Moran like the team did, yes, you're getting much better defense at first base from Moran, but Moran is nowhere near the legitimate power that Josh Bell brings to the table. And things may have been different if this was an American League team or a universal designated hitter was in place where the organization could have Bell and Moran split time between DHing and at first base. But at this point, I think it was a mistake for the Pirates to give up on Josh Bell that easily. And now he's at 27 home runs with between 15 to 16 games left, could get well over the 30 mark. And it's situations like this as to why the narratives never die about the Pirates trading away their good players. 
this is, yes, the first time that Ben Charrington has really shorted the team based on what we've seen already. But the problem is, is that when it comes to the national narrative, the narrative of the fans, nobody looks at which general manager it was that made the trade. They don't look at, well, it was Neil Huntington who dealt Garrett Cole. It was Neil Huntington who dealt Andrew McCutcheon, despite signing him to one contract extension already. Nobody looks at the fact that it was Huntington who gave up Cole for absolutely nothing. I know I mentioned Garrett Cole twice, but I had to highlight the return being extremely underwhelming in the second mentioning. But now it's Charrington that gave up too early on Josh Bell. And again, really, this is the first time that I have been a bit critical of Ben Charrington because the value that they got for Bell was as low as it could be. If he came into this season slugging home run after home run and the team had no interest in extending him after his contract expires, then you deal him at the deadline. That power bat would have brought in a huge return of prospects or even players who were once top prospects that are at the major league level, kind of like what the Pirates sent to the Rays for Austin Meadows or in Austin Meadows for Chris Archer. That would have significantly helped the state of the Pirates. And yes, it would have fueled the fire of the Pirates only trading their good players, especially when his value was at the highest. But it would have helped them more so in the future than what they got out of him now. Now, I also mentioned before the break, looking at another veteran that the Pirates organization should look to extend after this season. This was a veteran that I was very critical of in the past about what value he even brought to the team and to the organization at this point, especially when he dropped a routine pop-up in the infield to allow the Cubs to walk it off and win. That being Wilma Defoe. But what I'm starting to see now or as of recently from Defoe in the past week and a half to two weeks is that he is a very efficient pinch hitter. He comes off of the bench in a situation where the Pirates need someone to get on base and drive in a run, and he does it. Whether it's one of those stipulations or both, he does it. And pinch hitting is not an easy task, but he has found a way to make it look easier than what it is. He's a 276 hitter as a pirate this season in 203 at bats. To put into perspective, 275, 280 was basically about where 
Adam Frazier sat with the organization every year in terms of batting average. So you're basically getting Adam Frazier production off of the bench. And so now that I think about it and look back over the course of those 203 at-bats Defoe has brought to the team, it really makes me want him to, at the very least, come back for another season. By no means should he be a starter, but he can certainly come off the bench, play a game here and there, and be a pinch hitter as necessary. I think taking a step forward for the organization would see him get more opportunities to pinch hit and allow the team to win games by continuing to drive in those runs. Find a way to get on base, whether it's a hit, a walk, hit by pitch, whatever it may be, however it may be. But Defoe certainly needing to be brought back at least for one more year because his versatility is another element that most players don't bring to the table. Defoe, he can play second base, shortstop, third base, center field, even the corner outfield spots. Now, of course, not as strong in the outfield as he is in the infield, but certainly better than Cole Tucker out there, that's for sure. So having that versatility should be something that the Pirates, I would think, would look to keep around in their organization because you're not going to be able to find many players like Defoe that you can slot into three out of four infield positions and on an as-needed basis throw him anywhere in the outfield. And then finally today, a couple of pitchers for the Pirates really fighting for their 2022 rotation spot. Mitch Keller, Bryce Wilson, even at this point, JT Brubaker, because of the poor performances that he had this season, ultimately being shut down for the remainder of the year, put on the injured list. But JT Brubaker continued to give up way too many home runs. Mitch Keller continues to be inefficient, continues to struggle to retire hitters. And he's gotten plenty of opportunities this season and in the past. He's made 20 starts this season, ERA of 6.14 in his career, 36 games started, 599 ERA. That's nowhere near good enough. He's thrown over 150 innings as a major league pitcher. At some point, the Pirates need to decide if this is someone they even want to consider keeping on the roster. But regardless, he cannot go into the season next year with a guaranteed rotation spot. And after the way Brubaker pitched this year, he absolutely cannot either, because at this point, I question whether or not Brubaker's 2020 season was a complete fluke. Yes, he was good over the course of that 60-game season, where he made maybe seven, eight starts, nine at most. 
but he hasn't shown he can do it over the course of a full 162-game season. He got lit up this year. And so, again, can't be guaranteed a rotation spot. Bryce Wilson, brought over from the Atlanta Braves in the Richard Rodriguez trade. His ERA just under five this season. And again, he's another one where he's had some good moments with the team. Sometimes he's been a bit shaky. The biggest thing with Bryce Wilson is ultimately just his inability to go deep in the ball games. Now, as a member of the Pirates, Wilson's ERA even higher than it was in Atlanta was 483 in Atlanta, 509 in Pittsburgh, averaging out to 497 based upon seven starts with each team. But again, Bryce Wilson, you can't guarantee him anything. Yes, he is two years younger than Mitch Keller, so he has a little bit more room for growth, but you can't guarantee him anything when this organization is looking to improve every single season and you can't trot pitchers out into your rotation that have ERAs over five and then you look at the rotation as a whole and three or four of the five have an ERA that is absolutely atrocious. You just can't. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Best of the Online Radio. Once again, I thank you all for tuning into this episode here on this beautiful Friday afternoon. I hope you all have a great weekend, and be sure to tune in on Monday at 3 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Thank you, everyone.